Good morning. It is good to see you. It is a thrill to be here. Uh, as Tom mentioned, we were here for about nine years, and it was uh, some of the nine best years of our lives. It is still, Sue and I still say, it's a favorite city we've ever lived in. Uh, had a great time here. Love you. Love the church. I'm really proud of you. We have been, um, I've been meeting with the elders and just praying. Our church is praying for you. Uh, you are loved and cared about, and I believe the future is super, super, super bright. So uh, it's just an honor for me to be here with you. I love the church, and I love the local church. I believe it is God's uh, gift to the world. I believe it is an unstoppable force. When it's working right, there's nothing more beautiful and powerful on the face of the earth. When it's working bad, there's rarely things more ugly. Uh, but it's a powerful thing. It's indestructible. It is unstoppable. And, um, and, it's, and it's us. It's made up of us. We are the, we are the church. And so uh, here's what I think about the church. This is why I love it. It's people gathered together. And when I think about this, like even in this moment, there are literally billions of people all over the planet gathering in gatherings to meet with God, to encourage one another, to connect to each other, to develop their own walk with God in a deeper way. Uh, it is an amazing, amazing thing. And uh, the, the truth is, the church is made up of a wide variety of people in a wide variety of places in their spiritual journey. All of us seeking to discover and grow into the reality that there is a God who is in relentless pursuit of us. I just want to remind you of this. You are deeply loved by God. His pursuit of you is relentless. His forgiveness never stops. His, uh, his forgiveness of everything you've ever done and everything you will do is completed. Your condemnation has been nailed to the cross. Uh, everything that you've ever done, to everything that's ever separated you from God was you-oriented, uh, and everything that ever drew you to God was God-oriented. God is the great beginner. He's the pursuer. He's the lover. And uh, at church, we get to come together, be the people of God, wherever we're at in that journey of finding our way to full devotion to Jesus Christ, to anchoring our identity and our sense of self, our family, our lives, our purpose into this incredible reality that we are fully known by God, fully loved by God, and shame is removed forever. These are just incredible things. And uh, the truth about it is that because we are in different places in our own journey of faith, uh, the church is made up of people in those different places, and we're, we're on this thing. So what I want to talk to you about today is I want to talk to you about your next move. Like, where are you currently in your relationship with God, that journey of faith, and what is your next move to keep moving forward? Next week, Chuck's going to start a series, uh, and it's going to be about disciples who learn how to help other disciples uh, walk with God. And this is kind of a great tee-up for that conversation. So we're going to look at two things. If you have a Bible, I want you to go to Luke chapter 8. We're going to look at Luke 8, get it on your smartphone. Uh, I don't know if dumb phones have Bibles on them, but if they do and you've got a dumb phone, find it there. Um, I don't know if you're if you have a paper Bible, you can cheat. Read it on the screen here in just a second. Uh, you, ever, you ever wonder if, um, like we just had the China spy balloon and, and uh, you know, they're watching us with our phones. You ever notice if you talk about, like I started shopping motorcycles recently and then you get all these ads uh, for motorcycle, anything you talk about in front of somebody. I mean, like there is no privacy does that weird you out? That's why I got the good old analog right there, baby. Uh, nobody's spying on me right here except the Holy Spirit. 
Anyway, Luke chapter 8, and we're going to read verses 4 to 9 and then verse 10 to 15. And we're going to do two things. We're going to look at this passage and let the Word of God speak to us about our own place, where we're at in this journey of uh, growing our relationship with God. And then we're going to lay over that a framework from a, from a, a, a dramatic piece of research that was done about how people develop spiritually. And then we're going to let uh, the Scriptures teach us. Uh, that's just a framework to help us identify, like self-identify, where am I in my journey with God? And then what's going to move me forward, Okay. So that's what we're doing, Luke chapter 8. We're going to be starting in verse 4. Um, if you don't mind, it's our practice back at home to, uh, and I'm sorry that we gave you a quarterback that had more bathrooms in his house than touchdown passes. Uh, I, I really think he's going to turn it around. It's going to be a great next year. You will be glad you made that trade at some point. Uh, we're glad you did. This year, you'll be glad you did, I think, moving forward. God is good. It's just football. You'll be okay. All right? Okay, but anyway, uh, at Evergreen, um, we stand for the reading of God's Word. So if you're able and willing to do that, it's just kind of make me feel at home. And so here we go. This is Luke 8, starting in verse 4. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and it was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than what was sown. When he said this, he called out, "'Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear.'" His disciples asked him what this parable meant. Verse 11, this is the meaning of the parable, Jesus said. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. Root or rut? Rut, root, root? Root. They have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. That is the word of God. You can be seated. Thank you so much. I used to think, and maybe you have thought, that, um, that Jesus is describing, we know that the soil is the heart. He says, you know, this is the, the seed is God's word. God has this redemptive word. I love just even this notion of the word. You have the creation voice of God. The word of God creates everything you see. Then you have the written word, uh, and, and then you have the incarnate word, Jesus the Christ. All of this, this word is planted in our hearts, and the soil is our heart. And some of us have... Uh, uh, soil in different conditions. But here's what I want to just point out to you uh, first off, is that all of our hearts are in the same condition at the starting line. And so I used to think that, well, there's good hearts and there's, there's hearts that are sold out to the pleasures, riches, and worries of the world. And then there's, there's hearts that have lots of rocks in them and there's hearts that are hardened. Uh, and that uh, only the good hearts, so I need to have a good heart. And that is a shortcut to the story, but the point is this, the dirt in every occasion is the same, and your heart is the dirt. 
So what we're talking about is the condition of that dirt, the environment of that dirt. Your heart is the same, and our hearts get affected by a wide variety of uh, forces. And so what Jesus is saying, that, that, that the Word of God has come, the incarnated Word of God has come, Jesus the Christ has come to transform your heart, which is in desperate need of transformation, by the way, because uh, Proverbs says that the heart of man is deceitful and desperately sick and beyond cure. And so we know that our hearts, even the best human beings you find, our hearts are not well. And so we need a redeemer. We need, uh, we need God to come and transform our hearts. We need transformation. And so what he's showing us here is that uh, our hearts can become what they were created by God to be, good soil. They can become fruitful even a hundred times more fruitful than what even God does in your heart. That's a staggering idea. And the question is, where is my heart? And, and so you have these hearts. The first one, he says, is like this hardened path. He calls it a path. And he said the seed there, the word that gets planted, gets trampled on and then eaten up by birds. And that's the, the enemy steals. Like some of us, some of us, as we enter into the faith discussion, have our hearts hardened. Life has been hard. Maybe there's been trauma. Maybe there has been deep betrayal. Uh, maybe there's been a shameful past, and you just can't get past your shame. And so there's this, there's this hardness. And some of us harden our hearts. It's a very natural thing for humans to do, is to harden our hearts to protect us from further injury. Uh, so sometimes people have walked on us. Sometimes we've hardened our hearts ourselves. But whatever the case, that word doesn't penetrate. But then there's other hearts where the word penetrates to a shallow level. There's some rocks in there, and there's some things going on in there that we'd rather not discuss. We kind of push things down. Denial is not like a river in Egypt. We just try to compartmentalize and push things down. But that stuff is there. And because we won't do business there, the seed stays shallow. We keep our faith shallow. And then he says, what happens there? Well, persecution comes and dries that up. Uh, others, uh, our heart is getting choked. Not by bad things. Riches, pleasures, and worries, uh, these are attached to good things. You don't worry about things you don't care about and love. I mean, we, God has given us a beautiful world and lots of wonderful things to participate in, and we can get wrapped up in that, and it can choke out our hearts. Even the good thing that we desire can start to choke us. But then there's this soil that has been, man, the soil's been worked. And so the activity of God, the person of Jesus, the activity of his Holy Spirit actually get in there and do transforming work where you become more fruitful a hundred times more than you ever thought possible. This is living. So we want to get there. Well, now I'll lay over that this uh, research that had been done. Three years of research from 2004 to 2007, Willow Creek funded a research project never has been done before or since something this robust to assess how do people grow in their faith and how is the church's relationship with that and what keeps people moving. So while the research finished in 2007, it went, they, they continued on, a third party picked it up and continued it. We're talking about over a thousand churches, 25,000 Christians interviewed, church attenders interviewed, uh, all kinds of uh, surveys done, assessments done, and they wanted to know, the, the purpose of the thing was, how is the church helping people move along in their faith? And I got some really bad news for you. It was bad news for pastors, 
the overwhelming outcome of this huge project is that there is zero correlation between a person's spiritual growth and how many times they engage with their church. And every pastor, and I was pastoring here when this research came out, and it was like, oh! Now I wanna point out this is correlation, not causation. So the church isn't causing spiritual paralysis, but neither is it the cure. And so people, what they, what they found is that, that people are not moving along in their faith in a direct correlation to the amount of engagement they have with their local church. They're growing in their faith for different reasons. And this is what the parable of the soil tells us too. So we're going to overlay these two and we're going to walk through. So what they found in this, uh, in this research is that in every church, there are four kinds of people in the church. And I think they correspond with the soils in Luke 8. First, there are the exploring Christ. These are people who have had an awareness of God. You know what? I believe God is real. I have sensed more in this world than I could deny. I, I can't go the atheist way. I believe there's a God. I'm just not sure about Jesus. Uh, you know, you guys talk about him being the only way. Can that really be true? And, you're, and so these exploring Christ people are people who believe in God, but they're not sure about the Jesus thing, and they're not sure how it all works. But they're hanging out, and they're trying to find their way. Now, here's an interesting thing. The research indicated that if you stayed in the exploring Christ phase and stayed involved in church for five years without moving to the next phase, there was a statistical almost certainty that you will never find Christ. Now, this is another staggering part of the research, and I think this explains the great leaving of the church by young generations. They hung around church without connecting to Jesus, and this is, this is total side note, this isn't the point of this conversation, but I, I think it's really important to talk about. This is why parenting is so critically important, to parent authentically and help our kids not have religion, not have church, but have a relationship with God, that they know God loves them, that they know his love is immovable, that they run to him, they meet him, they understand the scriptures are powerful. I mean, this is really important, and it's why an intergenerational church, and you'll hear Chuck talk about this over and over and over again, is so important. I've had a theory for a long time. The odds of a young person staying connected to Jesus and the church as an adult is directly proportional to the number of adults they have in their life that are not their parents. And so I believe that what's going to happen is as an intergenerational church, we, we help people not just hang around. This is a, another staggering stat. Uh, it's more spiritually dangerous for a child to be raised in church than for them to be raised not in church by one percentage point. Uh, meaning that uh, people not raised in church become Christians at one percentage point higher than kids who are raised in church. This is the danger of inoculation. This is a danger of churches that are about religion or about rules or about legalism or about other stuff and not about knowing and walking with God in his grace and having your sin nailed to the tree and your condemnations removed. I mean, we, we've somehow failed to give the real deal to maybe uh, you know almost a whole generation. So that's the first category, exploring in Christ. These are the ones who I would say the, the, the seed is bouncing on top of their hearts, but it's not penetrating for a wide variety of reasons. The second group are, are called uh, growing in Christ. These are people who have decided, you know what? I believe intellectually that Jesus actually did purchase my forgiveness 
and I will go to heaven when I die because of Jesus. I don't have an ongoing relationship with him. I don't really, uh, I don't really lean on him in my day-to-day life. But I believe that when I die and God says, why in the world shall I let you into heaven? I will say Jesus and he'll say, well done. Um, another way to word this is your exam to get into heaven is not a theology exam. It's a blood test. Are you in the family? I've, I've been redeemed by Jesus. They believe that. The hurdle is, what about from here to there? Now, this was a zone that I got lost in in a lot of my spiritual development journey because I believed that Jesus forgave my sin on the cross and that I would go to heaven because of him. What I had trouble with was I was in a church that taught sin management and I embraced that what I was supposed to do from now to heaven is manage my sin really, really well. And the better I managed my sin, the more faithful I was to God. And, but if you've had any effort, if you're willing to tell the truth, shame the devil, about trying to manage your sin, you recognize that that's not a, nobody bats a thousand. And so what I struggled with was this ongoing shame. Like I could embrace that Jesus forgave the sin I had in my life before I knew him, but what is he going to do with the sin in my life after I knew him that I, that I continued in or fell into? And this becomes a zone where these, this, this category of believer, this growing in Christ, I know Jesus cares about my eternal destiny. I just can't figure out how it all works right here. The third category are close to Christ. These are people who not only believe that Jesus uh, will redeem their eternal destiny, but that he's actually involved in their life right now. Like they can call on him. They can can, uh, expect him to be helpful. They can expect him to care in the moment. He's paying attention. He's on the job. He's he's like, "I I can call to him. And then the next category is called Christ-centered. Christ-centered are people who their relationship with Jesus has become the most important relationship in their entire world. And every relationship in their life is subjugated to that one. Now, Jesus isn't a part of my life. Jesus Jesus isn't my ticket to heaven. Jesus isn't my religion. Jesus is my life. I'm connected to God. I know this is me now. Like this is where I've uh, been, uh, found my way by God's grace to this place. I still have, uh, you know, a certain level of success at my sin management game, but I sleep like a baby every night. You know why? Because Jesus has completed the forgiveness of my sin. My condemnation was nailed to the cross with Jesus forever. And so, uh, I live by the grace of the Lord Jesus, who purchased my forgiveness forever. Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For what the law of sin and death was powerless to do, God did through the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, by giving his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, like he sealed the deal. It's a, there's a thing in the universe that is done. A lot of the world doesn't know it. It's done. Jesus died for the sin of the world. All we have to do is receive that and live in relationship with God, transformed. This is an amazing thing. And Christ-centered people are people who say, this relationship with God is the core of who I am. My marriage is subjugated to it. My children are subjugated to it. My career, my dreams, everything comes in after this because this has become my life. They have learned what Jesus said, that my yoke is easy, my burden is light. They've learned real freedom. 
And so they live joyful, free, even in adversity. So these are the soils. Well, here's the interesting thing. Connected to Christ and Christ-centered, that group right there, 25% of them confess to being stuck in their walk with God. Stuck. How do they get that way? Well, I believe that there is, uh, I, I mentioned to you that the church has no correlation with your own spiritual development, like where you are on that scale from exploring Christ to Christ-centered. Uh, your, your, the number of times you come to the church campus, the number of times you engage with the church has no correlation to where you are on that map. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. There's one cause, and that is your personal engagement with God. You're going to hear Chuck talk about this all the time. If he hasn't already, he will, and he will multiple times. Hebrews chapter 5, Jesus, though he was the Son of God, learned obedience from what he suffered. That chapter goes on to talk about spiritual maturity. It says that milk is for babies, okay? And I could tell you that I don't mind giving milk to baby Christians, but when I got to part the, the hairs on your mustache to get the nipple in your mouth, we have a problem, okay? And so here's what the church has been Burger King. The church has said, you can have it your way. Special orders don't upset us. What do you want from your church? And we'll give it to you. You're, you know, we're, we're just the vending machine and you're the consumer and you come in and get your fix and that won't do the job. So we need to quit being Burger King. We need to be Home Depot. You can do it. We can help. You can do this. We can help. By the way, Home Depot didn't originate that slogan. I don't know if you know that. A little hardware store somewhere in Omaha, Ace Hardware came up with that. Home Depot stole it because they thought the big guy, little guy can't stop us. They sued him, got really rich because Home Depot, and they had to stop you. Anyway, the point is, we are the body of Jesus, and we help each other. You can do this. You can walk with God. You can know forgiveness of your sin. You can let Jesus own more of your heart. You can overcome the trauma and the trials and the trash and all that you've had to go through, you can overcome with God. And we're here to cheer you on and equip you to do that. That's the secret. So let's walk through now one more time. What is the movement? How do I go from exploring Christ to growing in Christ and from growing in Christ to connected to Christ? And here's what I want. I want to spend our time because of a limited time. And this next series is going to take you through a lot of stuff in your growth as a disciple of Jesus. Let's focus on this. Uh, I believe that for the connected to Christ and the Christ-centered, I told you that 25% of them confess that they are spiritually stuck. And I think that they hit the wall. So I have this drawing that I made years ago to help me understand this process. And these labels kind of coincide with the soil and with the discovery from the reveal study. First of all, a person has this awareness of God. Holy cow, God is real. And they start a relationship with God. That's the first step. And uh, I don't know if that happened to you, when that happened to you. I was in a church. I was 16 years old. My dad had died of cancer about three weeks prior to that. And I had this overwhelming awareness of the presence of God. I had no idea. Like I gave my heart to God. And five minutes later, after that gathering was over, if I'd have taken a theology exam, I would have flunked. I had no idea what just happened but I was overwhelmed with the awareness of God. That's our birthplace. Then we become, uh, we start learning. We become disciples and we start learning. We, wanna, we start learning the scriptures and we start learning about God. 
And then we go to the next phase where we start serving. Like, I, I, I love God. I love the church. I love this thing. And I'm, and I'm going to start serving other people. And maybe I'll serve in the church. Maybe I'll serve in the city. But I want to serve because my life's being changed. And then, then comes the wall. The wall, I think for most people, is an experience of profound disappointment. Uh, your marriage ended. You prayed for someone you love. They had a diagnosis, and you prayed, and you prayed, and you prayed, and you prayed, and they died anyway. You had a kid go through a phase, and you prayed, and you prayed, and you prayed, and you prayed, and they didn't turn. Uh, you, you, man, when you're young, and you're like, I'm going to make the team. I'm going to get a college scholarship, and you prayed, and you prayed. I have known people who had same-sex attraction. They believed that the Bible did not make room for that, and they cried out to God, and cried out to God, and cried out to God, for him to take their same-sex attraction away, and he didn't. And they are frustrated. And people who hit this wall, and it's, some, some people have called it throughout history the dark night of the soul. Sometimes it's depression and it's clinical. Sometimes it is just deep, deep disappointment. But we reach this belief. Jesus is still somehow the king. Somehow heaven is real, but I'm lost and you plop down right there and you lean against that wall and you're stuck. And what you do is you stop praying because you believe that really prayer doesn't work. You've seen that in your life and you say, well, God's going to do whatever he's going to do, whether I pray to him or not. So if I pray and he, if he was going to do it, he'll do it. And if he wasn't, he won't. And if I don't pray and he was going to do it, he'd still do it. And you start falling into this really boring place in your faith. It's boring it is uh, without life and joy, but you don't know what to do. So you reach it's kind of this apathy, this stuckness. And here's the deal about the wall. You cannot climb over the wall. The only way through the wall is under the wall into the inner life with God. This is where we get back to the parable of the soils. How do I get my hard heart that has been trampled on broken up into soft soil, the inner life with God? How do I get these rocks that are keeping God's word from going deeper into my life and changing this stuff that I've dealt with in my life? Inner life with God. How do I figure out how, you know, these good things in my life that are actually choking me? How do I amputate those? How do I calibrate those correctly so that I can have a joyful life, a purposeful life, a inner life with God? Your whole life God wants to get you to the place where you have this inner life with God. I call it altar and stewardship, like you, you're, you're alone with God, you're consecrating your life to God, you're being commissioned by God, and then you get up and you live your life as a stewardship of the God who is in you. This is, this is life. But it got hard, and it got painful, and it got ugly, and somebody betrayed, and somebody broke, and and. And maybe you just did terrible things and you can't forgive yourself. There's lots of reasons we hit the wall. And Jesus is still king and he still loves you and he's still pursuing you. And sometimes it's disappointment because you had a plan and God didn't honor your plan. And uh, when you read, this is one of the reasons the Bible is so helpful because you read about people like Joseph who God gave him this dream, you're going to be great. And then he sends him, his brother is going to kill him. Uh, we won't kill him, we'll send him into slavery. Oh, I'm a good slave. Oh, uh, his, this wife wants to seduce me, but I won't have sex with her. So she claims a fake rape. Now I'm in prison. 13 years 
of Joseph from dream to going through hell, and all of a sudden overnight he gets his dream true. That's a dark place. That's the wall. Is God even here? Does he see me? Okay, and the only way is not over that wall, it's under it. It's, it's going into the inner life of God. Where now you start dealing with who am I? Who is God? Who is God in me? What is God doing in this world and what's my place in it? And you deal with the real stuff. This is where you get some of those nights where you have like slobbers, you know, snot slinging cries. I saw a meme the other day, this video, this guy said, he's got this, you know, man beard, and, and he says, men can only cry for three reasons. Uh, you know, when they see their bride on their wedding day, uh, at the birth of a child, and then he names some scene in a John Wayne movie where, you know, he dies, you can cry there, right there. You know, but listen, you're going to go in this dark night of the soul, and you're going you're gonna to go in the inner life with God, and you're going you're gonna to lay your crap in front of him, and he's going to help you in a long process. My mother hates it when I say this. Uh, she messaged me the other day, stop telling people you were raised by a pack of wolves. But I was raised by a pack of wolves. And, uh, you know, you've got, you've got all your scar tissue from your family of origin. And you've got the sin that you did. And you've got stuff that was done to you. And you've got confusion. For me, the big battle was shame. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, there's only one way to get through that. And that's to dig, 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 get the rocks out, get the weeds out, get the hard heart broken up, and get serious with God and meet Him in these dark places of your soul. By His grace, He's going to keep moving you there because, and this is the thing I love most about God, He's going to drive you to that place because, okay, I just did that. I had a spitball come out. I noticed nobody sits in the front row. And maybe you didn't see it. The light hit it. It's, it looked like a sparkling projectile as it came out of my mouth. Sorry. It, I, I just feel like I have to acknowledge it since you probably saw it. I love this about God. When the enemy grinds you and grinds you and beats you and, and hurts you and hurts you with your own, you know, some people say everything happens for a reason. Yeah, and sometimes the reason is you're stupid and made terrible decisions. And you've got, you got brokenness from that. And that place where the devil has his foot on your neck and he says, now I've got you, sucker. That's how I think he talks. I got you, sucker. That very place where he thinks he's going to break you and snap you in half forever, that's the place where when you go in the dark night of the soul, Jesus is going to bring miraculous healing to you. And that place that the enemy thought was going to ruin you actually becomes the birthplace of brand new revelation from God, brand new wholeness, brand new uh, acknowledgement of your forgiveness by God, brand new awareness that you're deeply loved by God, not because of what you've done for him, not because of how good you are, just because he chose to love you. And then you can begin to heal and grow. And then you go from that inner life to an outer life of love. Now it's not about religion. Now you're not trying to win people to your church. Now you're not trying to change their sin habits. Now you're not trying to bring legalistic religion to them. You're trying to help them find the great radical love of God that now has changed your life forever. And you live in the love zone, which is also the zone of incredible transformation and call because he's not going to stop shaping you. It's like a it's still, but you love it. It's the secret of the easy yoke and the light burden. Now, man, and this is why Christ-centered people who get through that wall this is why nothing, nothing is going to get above or between 
me and Jesus. Nothing. Because I can't live without him. In 2020, March of 2020, you know, COVID happened. And I live in a state where the governor declared himself to be a benevolent dictator. And he began to make lots of rules about uh, public gatherings and about how church can operate. And then uh, people on all political spectrums started having really severe opinions about how their pastor ought to respond to that. And life got really hard. And uh, I started having anxiety attacks for the first time in my life. About four years before that, I'd had, uh, I had uh, um, uh, what's it called? AFib. I had AFib, and uh, my doctor said some people have AFib and they don't know it. But I could feel it every time it happened. It felt like a bird trying to fly in my chest. I started having AFib about five years before, and um, they found it. And uh, eventually I had a, this thing called an ablation, and it cured it. So, I, so it was gone. I hadn't had it for four years. Well, during March 2020, it started happening again. And it would be two or three minutes here, four or five minutes there. Then it got to be 10 minutes. Then it got to be a half hour. One day I'm sitting in my office, and it's three hours. It won't stop. So I get in the car and I go to urgent care and I think, well, my AFib is back. And I go in there and every man's afraid when you go to the doctor, he's going to say, there's nothing wrong with you. What's wrong with you, you little wuss? That's what I thought he would say. So I'm like, while I'm getting in there, I'm praying, God, don't let this stop because if it stops, they're going to say nothing's wrong with me. And sure enough, they hook me all up and it's still happening. So I'm like, okay. They come back and said, there is nothing going on in your heart. You're having an anxiety attack. I had never had one before. And so that put me on this journey of, wow. Uh, and I started learning as I went into the inner life with Jesus about my anxiety. I started learning that I had actually had that like anxiety was a gift from my family of origin and that I'd had this nebulous form of anxiety all the time. But here's what I started learning as I, as I invited Jesus to be with me in my anxiety. I had three things that would help me instantly. One is it would start happening and I would say, Jesus, you are here. You've always been here. Now I'm here with you. And man, it would stop right away. I did that. Every time I would start to feel anxious, I'd start asking. I'd start confessing the presence of Jesus. Second, I would quote Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. The king of the whole universe is my shepherd. He's on the job. Lord, you're on the job. You are with me. You're, tender. you're tending to me. You are going to feed me. In fact, the verse says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. This would be my confession. Anxiety would settle. The other one, I think it's Psalm 19. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. These were my, these were my constant dialogues with Jesus during that stretch of time. It's the only way I calibrated my life. But here's what I'm telling you. This comes in this inner life with God. So let me give you one sentence. I'm going to give you one sentence, and then we're going to wrap this up and give you a chance to respond. Uh, years ago, when I was pastoring here, I saw this card from a church that was late at a restaurant or something, and it said, life transformation begins with encounters with God. And they were advertising a revival kind of gathering. And I thought, life transformation begins with encounters with God. That's true, but that's the beginning. Like, how do we get through to full transformation? So I started thinking about this and how does God actually move us? And then my father-in-law, who's a retired missionary, every time he would come to visit, I would work on this. Like, you know, how do people, okay, it begins with an encounter with God, this awareness, God is real, holy cow, God is awesome. But where does it go next? 
And we kept working on it, working on it, working on it. Like after the third year, it was in the Target Starbucks in Lone Tree. We're sitting there while the women are doing women's shopping things. And we're working on this sentence and we finished it. We got it. And here it is. I want you to, I want you to hear this. This is your journey. Life transformation begins with encounters with God. We need the presence of God. And it is established through my relationships. This is why we need the church. This is why we need each other. We look each other in the eye and go, me too. Or we say, you can do this. God hasn't given up on you. It's established through my relationships. It's, uh, um, it, it, it's, it's uh, I said it's established. It is, it is uh, what is my word? It is shaped by my relationships. We tell students all the time, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. That's true in our faith journey. So we need these relationships, okay? So it begins with this encounter with God. It's shaped by my relationships. It is established by my spiritual disciplines. It is established when I open God's word and let it speak to my life. Uh, the word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword, divides the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. God's word speaks. So as I have disciplines of praying, maybe fasting, memorizing scripture, engaging the word, God establishes my relationship with him. This is why the church has no correlation to you right here. You will establish your zone of spiritual life, yourself with God, the inner life with God. Then it's energized by serving others. And I've realized that serving others really is, it's energized by loving others well, like Jesus does. And then it's reproduced in the lives of others by authenticity. People hate fake Christians. People hate shallow Christianity. So, three responses I want you to think about. One, where are you on that journey? Exploring Christ, growing in Christ, connected to Christ, Christ-centered, or are you at the wall? Where are you? I've been praying for you before today, and I'm praying for you in this moment that you will have a rapid awareness of where you are in that journey. And there is no shame in that game. This is a confession of just where I'm at. There's never shame in that. And this isn't about earning stuff from God. This is about letting Jesus, by his spirit, walk you into deeper relationship with God, into full transformation of your life. Okay, where are you? Second, what's your next move? What should I do next? How am I gonna move to, how am I gonna contribute and partner with God to move forward? Is it gonna be a friend that I admire their walk with God? I'm gonna ask them to spend time with me and talk to me through this. Is it gonna be, uh, uh, is it gonna be a, a focused time of uh, really introspective uh, reflecting with God? Is it gonna be a professional counselor who's gonna help me? This boulder's so big, I can't move it by myself. I need professional help. You know, what, what am I gonna do? Okay, your marriage, your friendships, your work life, your kids, all of it, the key to it, take out a Sharpie, draw a circle around yourself and fix everything in that circle. This is about you and God and your whole life's about you and God. This is why blaming people is not helpful. This is why uh, getting revenge is not helpful. It's about you and God. What are you gonna do next? Third, who are you gonna encourage? Man, we need each other. So maybe you know somebody right now, I'm praying that the Lord will quicken somebody's mind or face to you as we pray and you respond and encourage them. A text, a phone call, 
uh, an ask out for coffee, just encourage somebody. Life is really hard and it's hard for everybody. You look at somebody's life and you think it's easy. Life is not easy for anyone. And if you think life is supposed to be easy, it gets exponentially harder. But if you embrace that life is hard and God is good, it becomes exponentially easier. Okay, I'm gonna pray for you. Pray with me. Lord, I'm so grateful for your presence, your grace, your goodness. Thank you for the word of God that penetrates our hearts. Thank you, Lord, that you want to keep digging in the soil of our heart and you wanna put seed in there that's gonna bear fruit a hundredfold, a hundred times what we imagine, even in our wildest dreams of character development and health and wholeness and freedom and joy and life because of Jesus. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us to know exactly where we are in this journey. Give us a snapshot right now, a place in time, this moment in time, where are we with you? I pray especially for those of us who say, I'm at the wall. I've been leaning against the wall. I'm too tired to push against the wall. I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm thinking about giving up on my faith because of the wall. I pray in the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, that you will give hope right now. Breathe hope into our lungs that you have not forgotten us, that you are with us right there, and that you will walk us into these dark places where we're asking hard, scary questions, staring at hard, scary history, and finding you faithful. Man, I pray for that. And I pray, Lord, that you give us a name, a face of someone that we should encourage and give us the courage to do it. Thank you. We love you. And we're grateful for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, these guys are going to lead us into a response time, and we're going to worship. And while we worship, you have some opportunities in front of you. You can just enjoy the worship, keep reflecting on God, let Him speak to you. You can move toward these prayer tables on either side. There will be someone there who will pray with you if you'd like someone to just pray with you. There's also communion set up on either side. You can just go serve communion to yourself and have some time alone with the Lord in that regard or with a friend. Uh, and there's a cross over here with some papers and a pencil and some nails. If you wanna just go nail something to that cross and confess that that is, that Jesus took that and you wanna surrender that, give it to God, that's a great place you can go and do that as well. All right, let's worship God together and let the, let the Lord keep speaking to us.